This episode has been brought to you by Always Discreet. Head to alwaysdiscreet.com.au to learn more about bladder leak tips, management, and incredible bladder leak protection. Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I am here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So I know I say this with every episode, but it's a really good episode. I'm talking with a physiotherapist, Indiana Frankie, about sex and low back pain. So low back pain is probably one of the most common musculoskeletal issues that people complain of. And as physios, especially physios who aren't working in pelvic health, we often will um, brush it off to the side or not want to talk about it or be uncomfortable. And in Indiana, we recorded this back in July, but she had done a really cool presentation called The Management of Sexual Activity in Spinal Dysfunction, an Exploration of the Musculoskeletal Physio's Role. And... So I asked her to come and talk about it a little bit more in depth. So we talk about getting comfortable with this topic within ourselves, but being able to ask patients the right questions and, um, you know, be prepared for what they might say back to us and then how we might be able to work out because there's not a lot of a research telling us, okay, Yes, there is some, and I'll put links in the show notes that, you know, if they have this type of back pain, then these sexual positions might be more appropriate for them but really talking about sexual activity important just in health in general so it was a really good conversation if you don't know anything about indiana she graduated from la trobe university in 2009 with a bachelor of physiotherapy she has pursued her strong interest in musculoskeletal sports and pelvic health to take a whole body approach to pain and injury management She worked in a prominent physiotherapy practice and an AFL football team in Melbourne for three years before moving to the Gold Coast, where, along with her partner, she saw a need for holistic health and wellness center and began the Living Well Studio. She has a keen interest in treating women's and men's pelvic health and working with prenatal and postnatal women to ensure optimal body health and return to activity during and after pregnancy. She's completed a postgraduate certificate in pelvic floor physiotherapy at Melbourne University and a number of master's subjects at Curtin University in women's and pelvic health. In 2019, she completed a master's of clinical physiotherapy in sports physio at the University of Queensland, qualifying her to be a titled sports physiotherapist with the Australian Physiotherapy Association. So here is my conversation with Indiana. So I guess I've been working as a physio for 10 years um, and initially came into physio, um, like interest in physio. I think I grew up with it actually because my dad's a physio. So he's a pretty heavy, musky physio. Manips was his main passion. Um, When I was about 14, I was doing full-time ballet and um, had quite a lot of intense injuries like shin splints and um, kind of chronic pelvic pain even at that age. And so I went and saw this like brilliant inspirational physio in Melbourne 
Um, and they had a really, they bought, were kind of one of the first practices that bought Pilates into their practice in a really authentic way and a really individualized way. So I was able to access that from a from an early age, that kind of one-on-one um, problem solving with Pilates and you know good clinical reasoning. Um, and the clinic that I was doing all of that um, Pilates training at and, and one-on-one physio stuff, they had a real interest in pelvic floor management then. Um, and a lot of the kind of Alison Grimaldi hip work really like way back in the early kind of 2000s, it was really cool. So that kind of got my interest in pelvic health. And then I think also because I'd suffered a little bit of stuff myself and was around dancers that had a lot of hip and pelvic pain and hypermobility, um, that was all kind of part of it. And so I was like, how can you be a physio without really understanding the pelvis? So pretty quickly after I finished, I was like, I need to go do post-grad training in pelvic floor. But kind of always knowing that I wanted to work in more of the musk setting and probably in a little bit of um, sports performance and, and, and chronic stuff as well. So I couldn't really just say I wanted to specialise in one area within the pelvic health um, domain. So it was kind of, for me, that was a really, really important part of my training. And then it was like, okay, I need to get good in my musk skills and sports skills. So that's why I went and did the Masters at UQ um, in sports and then and then in, and added the subjects in for maths. But I think the reason why I came to this topic was because I've always been interested in in um, looking from a biopsychosocial approach through like for all injuries. Um, and I always felt that sexual activity was left out. So I understand the stigma stigma associated with sexual activity and why it is a sensitive topic and and potentially a very sacred topic. Um, but I was still like, well, if physios aren't looking at it, who is looking at it? And I think each time I did these kind of aspects of education, so if it was the post-grad pelvic floor cert or the, um, you know, the, the, mas- the masters in musk, I thought I'd get the answers. And none of those courses really, really did it. Like no one was really addressing, you know, for someone with lower back pain or hip pain or, you know, neck pain, can they still engage in sexual activity? And, and how do we actually assess? what they're doing in sexual activity and is it actually an important part of health and there's so many questions. Um, I think that being involved in the pelvic health um, community has definitely taken a lot of the stigma away from me so I feel really confident in speaking about it Um, but I do think there's a big gap between musk management and the pelvic health management Um, and so that's kind of why I kind of went to Bill when I was, um, who runs the program at the Musk, in the Musk Masters and said, you know, I can look at proprioception in lower back pain or I can look at sexual activity in lower back pain. And he was like, oh, 100% sexual activity. It's, it's not managed very well yet. So. Yeah, it's interesting because there is that big difference. If you're working in pelvic health, often our focus is on vaginismus and dyspareunia. And when it's pain yeah. in the genital region with intercourse, so we talk a lot about that. But then, like I was a musk physio solely before, and the only time I think we asked, I don't remember asking about sex. I just remember brushing over the, do you have any bladder bowel issues? Nope. Okay, let's move on. That was about it. (laughs) Close as we got to that area. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, um, like, it's just, we're not taught how to do it. So we don't kind of go there. And I think, yeah, there's a bit of a silence in the community in general about talking about it. So that just kind of comes through. Um, and yeah, when you think about it, 
often people are having, in some cultures, people are having more sex than they're going to the gym. So the load that they're having, you know, their load on their spine or their load on their musculoskeletal system is actually affected by their sexual practice. Um, and we're not taking that into consideration. So it's quite, but we'll, but we'll look at what they do at the gym. It is interesting. And I mean, yeah, even in the, in the subjects that I did with the pelvic health stuff, um, I still don't feel like we had a way of kind of ascertaining what the normal sexual load was for that person. So, you know, how many times are they doing it before the pain started and then, you know, have they got back to that or how do they view it in their life and is it a, is it a problem? Because really it is an activity of, of life. So essentially we, we have to do this 20-minute podium presentation and so 20 minutes is quite a small time and I ended up covering quite a lot of information and had to cut it back a bit. I ended up just looking at um, does the musculoskeletal physio, you know, um, look at sexual dysfunction in lower back pain. But we know that low back pain is like one of the most common things that people are going to treat. So actually, I liked that you went that way. Yeah, exactly. I think it was like, it was probably um, the main, yeah, it was a really um, important thing to look at. And I think neck pain comes into it. But actually, when I looked at the research, lower back pain was, it was huge in lower back pain. So some of the, um, I mean, they were only case controlled studies. So it's pretty low, um, you know, low levels of evidence anyway, but because they're looking at lots of questionnaires within, within the studies and, and sexual function from those questionnaires. But even so, a lot of the um, cohorts that they looked at, which is, was up to kind of 600 patients on, um, on you know, lumbar disc surgery um, lists and stuff, they had like up to 81%, sometimes 100% of people had sexual dysfunction because of their lower back pain. Um, and it was, and it was, I think 100 in one of the studies out of 100 patients, all of them had at least um, they'd experienced lower back pain because of a position in sex. So, you know, it was it was an aggravating factor, but I don't think that we're writing it down as an aggravating factor in our subjective um, because we don't want to explore that but it could be such a good, good thing to explore in terms of looking at biomechanics and stuff. And so, yeah, it was amazing because I went into that research a little bit more and there has been some, some really interesting research done, like one study by Stuart McGill and Natalie Sadalkowitz. So they were in, in Canada. I don't know if you've seen that study um, where they put... They Is this got, the one with the images? Couples. Yeah, so they had the five couples and they did the, yeah, the EMG of the lumbar spine um, and got them to um, participate in five different coital positions. Um, and they were just looking at the spinal motion and the, the degree of flexion and extension in, in, during the intercourse between the two people. And they were able to kind of map if you're flexion intolerant, what positions you should um, avoid or if you're extension intolerant. And so I think that was a really good start because they had the images. So, you know, you've got both, with your patients, you can give them a chart and say, actually, if you've got this type of back pain, maybe you should look at these positions versus, um, you know, this this type of back pain, these positions. And I think also um, it's that that visual thing on top of what you're verbally saying to the patient that's so important. Like we need to have that to make it more professional as well because I think sometimes just having that conversation with the patient because of the, the stigma is so challenging for clinicians. And because we haven't had the education. Um, the other thing that was all through the literature was, you know, um, a couple of the studies were showing 
um, physio students that um, reported on lack of comfort when asking a patient about their, their sexual activity. Um, and that actually got worse through their years of training as a physio. So it was like 52% of the cohort in first year and then up to 75% of the cohort reported lack of comfort um, in addressing sexual activity with their patients by fourth year. So it was like, as the training goes on, people are less comfort, you know, comfortable with it, um, which to me doesn't sound like a good outcome, but I think it's around that sensitivity and the, and the stigma and, and the concern that, you know, you might be doing the wrong thing. Um, and interestingly as well, women were had much less comfort um, in addressing that than men in the student population so do, do we yeah. ever learn any of this at uni I don't remember learning no I don't know we I definitely didn't in my training and I have heard of some people that had handouts that they could give like to hip replacement patients post-op that was like here's the position you can have sex in um I never got that though on, on any of my also placements and I definitely don't think I got that education in the undergrad um, space. I did get, you know, you kind of were made aware of sexual misconduct, um, but but yeah, and I think this is where it took me to Dave Nichols' research, which I think I might have mentioned to you. Um, and Dave Nichols is so interesting. The stuff he's looked at with um, looking at the tacit educational standards, so the tacit tacit learning that goes on where. And he, most of their studies are in Scandinavia, but they've kind of said that at no point are students actually walked, walked through what's appropriate. They're kind of just reprimanded if they do something that's inappropriate. So if they don't drape properly or they don't, um, you know, stand in the right area or, you know, close the door or something. But they're not educated on what could be interpreted as sexual, sexually appropriate or inappropriate um, or how to address sexual activity as part of life so and and so and he thinks that that stems back from when physio was born we had to draw a very strong professional line between um you know what we did professionally and the sex sexual massage surface services and stuff so and you know he can he shows that kind of timeline of us saying nope we're not involved in anything that's intimate um, because we don't want to be interpreted that way. And then that's kind of carried through the educational system. So that's his theory on it. And I think that, yeah, I think we can take something from that for sure. Well, definitely. Um, and I'm going to make you go like back to basics for a minute because yeah. you looked at the research, but also, you know, what is surrounding sexual activity as an activity of daily living and why do we feel like it's important in health? So yeah. what, why, yeah. why do we need to care about this? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously there's um, the World Health Organization talk about it being a major part, like a central aspect to a human. Um, and, you know, sexual development is something that happens from all the way through life. Um, and I think, as a clinician, we kind of just think of it in the reproductive years, but actually from the moment you're born to the day you die, you're a sexual, a sexual human. And so um, that, that's something that actually needs to be taken into our clinical reasoning a little bit, I think. And, and again, that's probably not supported by mainstream um, media or social practice. So yeah, that's something to take into consideration. But also um, I, I looked really hard. Initially, my kind of first thing I said was, I just want to back up 
you know, the work by Marvin Gaye in 1982, which was, you know, sexual healing <laughs> um, is, is a thing. And you think about all the people that sing that song, sexual healing. Um, and I was like, is it actually a thing? Like is sex, is sexual activity part of healing or is it, is it good for us? And there was a really um, cool meta-analysis done in 2010 that looked at the psychological and physical improvements that you can get from sexual activity. And they looked at all different types of activities. Um, and the main outcome from that was that, yes, you can def there is definite improvements both psychologically and physically from sexual activity. They could only statistically prove it with penis and vagina intercourse, and it had to be um, with no condom use and both partners had to have an orgasm, which I thought was really interesting. That was the only one that was statistically significant, but there's obviously a whole lack in research. So, you know, I think it was important, that study made it really clear that you need to interpret the results carefully because there's just a lack of research. We don't look at women with women or, you know, men with men or different types of sexual practices. We've, we don't have that research. So. Um, but I thought it was exciting that we could actually back up sexual healing <laughs> and, and see that it was, you know, it, it can improve psychological and physical functioning. And in that case, um, you know, do why aren't physios and, 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 and rehab professionals looking at it as such an important thing if we can get those outcomes, especially for chronic pain? Um, you know, you'd think it needs to be something that really is addressed. And... Um, I think the other thing that was really interesting that came out as well is just the, the standards. So I think people have a very clear picture of what a healthy sexual activity is, and that's probably um, informed by some of the um, mainstream media and even things like Hollywood and pornographic stuff as well. So that can mean that the standard's really high with what you should be doing sexually and that, and obviously with some disability and, and pain and dysfunction, that can't be maintained. And so then there's this lack of this self-esteem issue. Um, and so that's another thing that I think sex therapists are probably really good at doing, which is, you know, looking at that standard and trying to get an appropriate and, um, you know, manageable, um, you know, sexual activity and sexual load and, and that's something that physios could definitely get educated in to try and improve health as well. So, um, and I think, that, yeah, there's a, there's a program called the Good Enough Sex Model or something like that, that, that comes out of sex therapy that, um, yeah, I just thought that was really important because I think in media, we don't, in the media, we don't use the media to promote healthy sexual behaviour. Um, not at all. So, and like you said, it's yeah. not, there's, there's so much discussion around, when we have patients that come in who have pain with sex in their genitals about reframing the idea of what sexual activity is because majority of people yeah. are thinking, okay, well, if something is not being inserted into the vagina, then yeah. it's not technically sex and having yeah. to reframe that and go, but that, that doesn't mean that it's not sex. There's other ways that you can be intimate with somebody and have pleasure and enjoyment and you don't even need another person around. So yeah. it's it's so like the the definition in a healthy world, you know, we're quite far behind, I think, in knowing about that ourselves and then helping with our patients. But then when they have pain, it makes it even harder. Um, yeah. So what happens yeah. with 
what is all the research or what did you find with regards to that and the back pain world? Um, so it was that uh, in terms of kind of um, the main thing was in the back pain world that I guess they had lack of self-esteem because their sexual activity was affected. So um, that was really clear in one study looking at workers' comp patients where um, 100% of that, that cohort had said that their sexual activity had been affected and they felt that they were obliged to have sex because they were, you know, it was part of their role, um, but it actually was very painful and, and not something they necessarily wanted to do. They'd lost the pleasure. So um, that was, to me, like, that was a really sad result and that's something that definitely, like, you know, obviously could be worked on. Um, and I guess, yeah, does that kind of answer your question in terms of... Yeah, you know, well, and I don't know, is it, and I, I guess I think we'll, we'll get to it, in in a minute or even now but when musk physios well do musk physios you said you've already said like they don't really ask about it and if they do ask whether or not they have an issue with it and somebody says yes they tend not to address it but if we think biomechanically like what is happening when someone has back pain with intercourse like how do you then take that and break it down to work out what you might need to think about doing yes well this is so I didn't really cover this in my in my thing in my presentation I kind of was more looking at do we address it and then if we don't okay we we obviously need we, we might need to um, because I don't fully know the answer to that. I mean, obviously, we've got the skills, like Tali Rosenbaum talks about it, we're really well presented, at, um, positioned to address this because we can break down movement and we can look at biomechanics and we can look at positions of the spine and pelvis and, you know, deduce what the best position would be. Um, but I think... So I think absolutely most must physios are positioned for that. And I think we leave undergraduate with those skills. Um, it's just breaking down the stigma of actually talking about sex. So I think it's quite hard because I've thought about it. Would I get up on the bed and demonstrate the position? Um, or would I get the person to demonstrate the position? Would they feel comfortable with I thought that? you meant like um, in as a physio student to your colleagues. But you're talking about with oh, but I'm talking about with the patient, yeah. yeah. But probably well, with, the, with that too. I mean, yeah. as a teacher, would you? I mean, I probably wouldn't worry. Um, I think it's pretty like I feel okay about it. But yeah, I'm sure a lot of teach, you know, a lot of teachers wouldn't feel good about getting up in front of the patients and dem- their students and demonstrating that. Like it has to be a safe space. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I think it's more that um, we can definitely work it out. And I definitely, I. If you come at it quite confidently, and you know this as well as a women's health physio, you know, if you come at it and just say, you know, is there any pain during sex and what position particularly makes you more aggravated, they can normally t- tell you. And then you can often talk it through without, um, without demonstrating. Um, but, yeah, it, it, is, it is difficult. And we just don't have that course. Like we need, the APA needs to run a course on, you know, managing sexual activity and lower back pain, you know, it's, I think it, you know, someone needs to put that together. And that's probably, you know, I could, I I kind of came at the end going, I could do a PhD on this. I was thinking that as soon as you started, I was like, oh, well, here's your topic. (laughs) Yeah, here's a bit of a, a a hole in the whole system. But yeah, I think it is, it is difficult. Um, One of the things that is nice is some of the patient reported outcome measures address 
sexual function. So like the ODI um, has that um, ODI eight, which is one of the um, is one of the boxes for you know looking at function in lower back pain, and they do include that sexual function, and that's a way in if you if your patients you know ticked that and they and they're looking at that, that might be a way that the clinician feels really comfortable to go there with them. Um, so I think there is actually an ODI that got put out that omitted the ODI eight because they were worried that people were put off by it. Um, this is the Oswestry, is that right? Yeah, the, the yeah. Oswestry Disability Index. Yeah. So there was further, um, I think there's further research confirming that that's, that's just not true. So it's, it's all answered completely validly, including the ODI eight. But I um, think mo I still see most clinics not having the sexual part in. It. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, put it back in. Exactly. So I would say that that's just not looking at the biopsychosocial approach properly. And um, we, we want to try and promote because people don't have to answer it. And if they're yeah. not answering it, then maybe it is. They, the, the, um, I think it was Coates and Peroni. They looked at it. Um, they're from the Sunshine Coast. And they just kind of said, if people aren't answering it, then then it's that's valid that you don't need to kind of deal with it. Everyone should know this by now. As a physiotherapist, I do not believe in telling women with urinary incontinence just to wear a pad or a liner and keep pushing through. I also don't believe that they have to stop doing the exercise and activities that they love forever in order to manage it. I know how important pelvic floor exercises are, I know how important modifications to risk factors are, and I know how important education is in helping to treat urinary incontinence, but I also know how extremely important promoting physical activity is. We have the highest quality evidence demonstrating that physiotherapists can greatly improve or often cure incontinence. But I also know that this management takes time and for some women, while it might improve their leaking by 80%, sometimes they will still have leaking or there will be a subset of women that we can't help enough. This is why I feel incontinence pads and liners still have a place and I'm honored to be asked to partner up with Always Discreet to help break the stigma around incontinence, empower and support women to start conversations about bladder leakage, provide the best information on management and also provide options to decrease embarrassing accidents that they may continue to have. So follow the hashtag WeAlwaysGotYou which is we, W-E-E, -E, join in on the conversation and as professionals continue to educate women about how we can help. And there's some good ones like the KUS, which looks at like knee osteoarthritis that addresses sexual activity. There's a few of them that do. Um, so I think it's nice if they do because then that's a way in to talk about it with the patient if, they, if they're, um, you know, ticking boxes in it. But it's, yeah, it, it is a difficult area. <laughs> So if someone's sitting, stale... no, no, go oh, on. Yeah. Oh, I just think there's that stalemate as well between um, the clinician and the patient. So clinicians often do want to talk about it, you know, because I think sometimes the patient will come in and have back pain from an unknown cause. It might have happened over the weekend, and there's a slight suggestion that it actually could have even happened from having sex, but the patient's not bringing that forward because they don't feel comfortable. And the, the clinician won't ask because they don't feel comfortable. But actually, if both of the people could bring it forward, the whole thing would work a lot better and there would be comfort across both, you know, from both parties. So 
it's just that, you know, who's initiating. And there was that um, one study, I think, look, it looked at Dutch neurosurgeons and it was exactly like, like the neurosurgeons did realise that it was their responsibility to talk about it, but they didn't feel comfortable enough because they didn't have enough education and they didn't want to put the patient in an uncomfortable position. And the same thing from the patients. They didn't want to put the surgeon in an uncomfortable position. So it's just like, how can we break this down, you know, and yeah. So if somebody listens to this and they go, okay, guilty, I'm a must physio, I'm not asking these questions. They have somebody yeah. come in and let's again, keep it simple with back pain. And yeah. so I guess it's easier, like you said, to have them maybe fill out an outcome measure until they're yeah. more comfortable talking about it. And then they notice that a patient has that ticked. What yeah. then should they say next? Like, I know I see that you have ticked this. Can we talk about yeah. it more? Or like you yeah. said, is you there... Comfortable? Yeah. yeah. Do you feel comfortable to talk about if, if your if sexual activity is affecting your lower back pain? You know, or is that... I often... I guess I feel like I can gauge if the patient's comfortable um, and I'll often just say, is your sexual activity affected by your lower back pain? Straight out. Um, but I think as well, even in our intake forms, potentially we could even say um, with, a, with a, an area that says sexual activity may be addressed as part of um, your injury. Do you feel okay talking about this? Um, and get them to tip, you know, that might be an option as well. Um, I'm completely pulling that out of my own rational <laughs> brain. It's yeah, not been but that's like, great. Yeah. Um, so, but yes, that's that's where I would go. And mostly, I'm I feel like I've been pretty. But see, I feel like I'm much more confident because I come from that pelvic health and women's men's and pelvic health background. Um, so for me, like I said, the stigma's kind of dropped. But I think it is the own individual clinician really has to work on their stuff around it too. I guess. Um, yeah. yeah, but the other thing that came out in the research too is um, in one of those studies, women did feel a lot more comfortable speaking to women and men felt more comfortable speaking to men. Um, so in terms of the clinician-patient relationship. So that's another thing just to consider, I guess. And, um, and we do have to be careful in terms of legality stuff. If, if, you, if you're not confident talking about it, then maybe you do open yourself up for a for an awkward situation and, and the patient might interpret you in the wrong way. Um, I think it's very unlikely, but it is there, you know, and I think that's also what stops physios going forward with it because um, they just are like, well, you know, we should just leave that alone from yeah. a legality point of view. Yeah, yeah. and if you, so, if you then, so then if you, if somebody felt comfortable enough to broach the topic and then... yeah then the patient opens up that there's certain positions. Um, yeah. If they've learned about, again, the little bit of information that's out there about going, okay, well, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Biomechanically, okay, well, if you have pain doing this, maybe if you try it this way, is that yeah. about the extent of the conversation or what else yeah. can you say? or else and then it would be breaking down the movement and saying well what potentially is where's the patient weak like can we get them a bit stronger can we prepare them and get their body functioning for sexual activity so you know just like we would with anything you know do, does it look like their back extensors are a bit weak um, or they're, they're not supported around the pelvic region so that that 
you know, reflex motion in that position. They actually just don't have enough strength around around the area to, to manage the, the activity that they're doing. Um, or, you know, or if things are not mobile enough or something like that. So you, you kind of treat it back like you would, I think, normally treat any musculoskeletal issue um, and prepare the patient for that. So you're getting an idea of load, you're getting an idea of position, what you need to prepare the patient for, and that's almost their goal. Like, yeah, I want to be able to have sex three times a week um, in this position because it feels the best for me or whatever. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of not rocket science, is it? It's just that we just don't go there. Um, well, and again, and tell people's, like, like people's experience of what positions they may have tried or know about or understand, I think might also be limiting um, that yeah. if they, and not saying that it, it's bad, but I have met lots of people who have only ever tried missionary and actually don't realize yeah. there is more options out there, which then if that yeah. is you as a clinician, I think it then makes it hard because you go, what else out there? Like, what can they do? I'm not actually sure. Yeah. yeah. And this is where, like, I think as physios, we need this education. Like we need this in an undergraduate level because I think you're right. Like if you find, you know, as you go through your sexual development, if you find a position that works for you, yeah, you might not change it. And that's the only thing that's informing you onto that type of movement. Um, so, yeah, I think it's like it would be good to, to have a bit more formal education on that um, because, again, like it's, it's a huge part of our function. Um, so, yeah, I think... Yeah, I know in the, um, I don't know if you've come across it, but I was talking to uh, Uchenna Osai from America yeah. and she yeah. had put me on to the OMG Yes, which I have recommended yeah. to so many patients. Um, they It's broken up into a couple seasons and as much as it's not so much a, a musculoskeletal, you know, which positions do you choose? It's actually all about trying to teach um, females, people with female anatomy about their own self-pleasure, but you can work with partners to teach you and yeah. they've kind of broken it down into what other external stimulation tricks can I try? Yeah. Okay, well, let's yeah. try all of these or um, what type of internal things can I try? And I know they're working on a yeah. season three. So I wonder if they mm. will then go into, okay, well, here are some different positions that you different can try. Positions. And yeah. It's relatively inexpensive and it is beautifully put mm. together. Like it's not, mm. you know, it's, it's pretty and the cinematography is lovely and they, mm. you know, have had used a lot of kind of researchers in the background to help them put it together. And it's exciting mm. to have a resource like that, but it, there's nothing really mm. any else. There's nothing else, is there? No. And I think like that's that when porn. we go back to what are we, but what are we being informed by exactly yeah. stuff that's probably really yeah really not realistic um and i think definitely you know you'd agree that we're seeing some secondary effects from that in the women's men's and pelvic health you know stuff it's like you start to see some dysfunction that occurs from the modeling coming from pornographic um you know material so yeah that sounds amazing i think you know and also teaching teaching because there's still that gap with women and men with orgasming you know as well which we know has such an amazing effect on um, endogenous opioid and, um, you know, potentially pain management. So I think most of them are animal studies, but they have shown that sexual activity in animals does decrease your um, 
increases your pain threshold, sorry. So, you know, it takes further for you to feel pain if, the, if you have more sexual activity. So, you know, that's pretty amazing. It, it, looking at those kind of things, it's like we should be looking at it. <laughs> um, but they're difficult studies to do. Like, you, can, you know, difficult and time-consuming and like anything. Um, but I would encourage, I think, you know, physios across the, all, all areas need to look at it because even in aged care and even in paediatrics, um, you know, if we're looking, we are sexual beings. So it's, it's something that needs to be included. And who else is doing it? I mean, the sex therapists. Yeah. How do so. you bring that into paediatrics? Well, I guess it's just understanding that they have sexual milestones and mm. um, because often I think they get shamed. There's a lot of shame that happens and we know the effects of shame. I think some of the pelvic floor dysfunction we see is associated with shame. So um, I think if we can normalise it a little bit, I mean, obviously understanding dysfunction and boundaries and all of that is really important, but I think, yeah, it's like just knowing that we are sexual beings and, and these are normal milestones and... Um, yeah, for me, it, I, th I think it's just would be more beneficial. And it, it just means as well that sometimes the physios wouldn't walk away from certain experiences feeling uncomfortable as well. Um, yeah, because I know, you know, in, in, some, in neurological, when there's brain injury, sometimes um, you get more of these kind of, these interactions with patients because they lose their inhibition and it can be, you know, a bit sexually inappropriate and, and um, the clinician can you know, can walk away feeling quite uncomfortable about that. <laughs> and it's normally the senior physios that, that will say, look, this is why it's happening and they talk you through it. But it's often not in our education, you know, that this is why it's happening. So, yeah. And I think the other thing that Dave Nichols brings up a little bit is that we are touching patients a lot and that can be interpreted as sexual for the patient but also the clinician. So at times when you're touching a patient, you may have a sexual thought come into your head that you don't have control of. And we, by understanding how to manage that, I think it would really help clinicians feeling more comfortable about doing what they're doing and also preventing, you know, um, things from happening that are wrong. Like, you know, yeah, um, I guess sexual misconduct and stuff. So it's, look, it's a very touchy subject and, and yeah. challenging, but I think good on him for trying to look at it because we kind of just stay away from it. Yeah, well, and yeah. on the topic of sexual misconduct, I'd assume, like you said, that's why a lot of people may not talk about it with their patients. And I think mm. what you said is probably the most important part of that is being able to read people that if you're going to bring yeah. this topic up with somebody because you know it's important, that you then yeah. have to be able to read whether or not they are comfortable because you know how some patients will sit there and kind of go mute and not say anything. And you yeah. may feel like, again, because we love to talk instead of listening, um, that then they walk away and may not feel yeah. heard and it can go the other way. So are there any yeah. kind of tips or ideas on how people can work that out or learn more about it? Yeah. Mm. Well, this is where I don't think there is. Like, in terms yeah. of learning more about it, I couldn't find resource on that. Um, and so that's where I was like, who's going to step into the space and, and create create that resource? Because I think everyone would benefit from it so much. Um, and especially as now, you know, we're getting some of the changes in in addressing gender as well and, and you know, all the diversity within sexuality. So 
you know, it could come at a good time that we're addressing all types of sexuality, do you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, but no, I don't, I don't have particular tips on that other than for me, the best thing was doing the pelvic health education um, and, and working through some of the stuff around that. Um, so I feel much more confident about how to deal with it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, like in terms of educating people on that, I don't know exactly how to go about it. Well, I guess yeah. it's good that the APA has actually now completely revamped their levels for women's, yes. men's yes. and pelvic health, which I pelvic think health, might yeah. bridge, at least for Australian physios, that will make it a little bit easier in order to um, sneak a little bit of information here and there rather than completely yeah. going and doing a full um, master's or, or post-grad um, in yeah. courses. And look... We just need a little bit more online, I think, right now, because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. the yeah. world is a little different for 2020. <laughs> so we is. might need more yeah. help online. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think it would be great if someone could just write, you know, something into some of the subjects in the undergraduate and postgraduate, you know, courses, like, um, because there's a bit of women's health and pelvic health in those. And, yeah, I just think it would be... But I think it needs to not be in those sections because no, they're no, the sections right. that I find if people are not totally interested because I've lectured for the, the master's students yeah. and there's always yeah, the ones that does. you know are interested and listen and yeah. then you know there's especially on Zoom you know that the other half are actually finishing the assignment that's due the next day because they're not interested because it's the women's health section or the pelvic floor section yeah. whereas if it's yeah. more embedded into the stuff they usually have it's yeah. just yeah. At, you know 10 minutes out of this one part and then another part when you're talking about outcome measures so um yeah. you are going to have a great conversation with bill right <laughs> yeah. yeah we'll see i don't know if bill will want to manage that <laughs> no i think Pretty he nice. can just you know hand that hand that over and, yeah, yeah yeah you just yeah. need to you uh, just need to look at the curriculum and go okay we need to put it in here when it's not three yeah. o'clock and or after lunch and people think yeah. that they're only going to yeah. be learning about, you know, changing biomechanics for this type of pain, but we're going to throw sex into there as well. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's more natural rather than completely separate. Yeah, and I think the research shows that the clinicians want to learn about it. So that was mm. the other thing that came out of a lot of the um, questionnaires was that they were um, they want to learn, they want those skills. The reason why they're not, it's a barrier. The reason why they're not addressing it because they haven't ticked that, you know, competency box. Um, but, you know, I think their ears prick up when you talk about it. When I brought that topic forward um, for the for the master's presentations, heaps of people wanted to listen in. Like it was, you know, like, yeah, how do we manage it? And I want to be able to manage it. So um, I reckon it would be like, you know, even if it was after lunch when their <laughs> blood sugar's low, it might just <laughs> kick in some adrenaline just talking about it. So, yeah. Did you have lots <laughs> of questions after your presentation from all of the masters? I did. Like, yeah. So one of the questions that was really interesting was, um, well, if, because some of the uh, um, studies kind of showed that as back pain got better, sexual function got better. So they were kind of, it was interesting, they were all studies that were doing surgery. So it was kind of like, oh, well, if you have this surgery, your sex life's going to get better, which annoyed me a bit because it's like, well, obviously their back pain's 
you know, you don't mm-hmm. have to have surgery to improve people's back pain um, or sexual function for that matter. But um, the that kind of was interesting to me because he because he was asking, um, you know, well, do we really need to address sexual function? Can't we just get their back pain better and then the sexual function will just naturally get better? And I think for me, like that just kind of stimulated some irritation because it was like, well, that's just like brushing it under the carpet, mm. you know, like, yes, the, that's true. Like at some, in, at some level, yep, when the back pain gets better, their sexual function will get better, but it might not get fully better. And do we know the iatrogenic effects from, you know, from it all and, and um, the ongoing effects of, of periods of lack of sexual, you know, quality of life? And, and I think how empowering people feel when, when things are addressed in the moment when they're in pain it's like that can be an absolute game changer so i think yeah by not addressing the elephant in the room like um and just kind of waiting for it to go away i just don't think that's the answer um so that was yeah that was an interesting question i think the other questions were around yeah how do we how do we go forward what what should we do um which i couldn't fully answer um and um and then the other ones was around legality, around are we actually, is it legal for us to ask these questions? Um, and, you know, is it within our scope of practice? And I think the answer definitely is it is within our scope of practice because we're asking around someone's, you know, lower back pain with activity, with, which is completely our scope of practice. Mm. Um, what's not discussed is the stigma associated with it. So, yeah. 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 So that was kind of the main questions. But, yeah. Um, interesting. <laughs> oh, that is, uh, that's why I was really excited to talk to you about it because it's, um, you know, again, in it's that bridge between the musk and the pelvic floor world, but there's so much lacking yeah. on both sides. And, yeah. you know, even if this conversation at least allows people to be even just become more aware of themselves and what yeah. they may or may not be skipping over so that they can then go, okay, yeah, I need to think about this. Or again, just starting with some outcome measures. We're starting to yeah. talk to people a little bit more. Um, and hopefully yeah. within that time, then um, more and more education will, will come out there for everybody. So I hope everybody enjoyed that as much as I did. Check out the show notes for links, some of the research articles that she's mentioned, her studio. And don't forget, if you want access to some patron-only episodes, you can head to podbean.com, find the Pelvic Health Podcast, or if you already have the app and you're listening to this via the Podbean app, there's a little button that says become a patron and you can support the podcast and cancel anytime. Otherwise, if you can put a review on Apple iTunes, we're now on Spotify, that would be lovely. Otherwise, just keep listening. And I hope, you know, that everyone is still enjoying this. And again, I hope that everybody stays safe and we are almost at the end of the year.